Welcome to Fast Asleep. Thanks for being here, but how could you resist? You're here for part three of an Algernon Blackwood tale. Okay, you've had to, at times, slog your way through slow, detailed moments, I know, in parts one and two, but now you've reached the conclusion of what is surely one of his very best examinations of a tortured, ghostly spirit. Oh, and Mr. Blackwood was well known as a broadcast narrator. Ah, we've been unable to find any of his recordings. But we can only imagine how he would present his works. Perfectly, I'm sure. But let's tuck in. Oh, and hold on for the conclusion of The Listener. cannot say what it was that suddenly drew my eyes upwards. I only know that without apparent reason I looked up and saw a person about halfway up the next turn of the stairs leaning forward over the balustrade and staring straight into my eyes. It was a man he appeared to be clinging to the rail rather than standing on the stairs. The gloom made it impossible to see much beyond the general outline, but the head and shoulders were seemingly enormous and stood sharply silhouetted against the skylight in the roof immediately above. The idea flashed into my brain in a moment that I was looking into the visage of something monstrous. The huge skull, the mane-like hair, the wide humped shoulders suggested, in a way I did not pause to analyze, that which was scarcely human. And for some seconds, fascinated by horror, I returned the gaze and stared into the dark, inscrutable countenance above me without knowing exactly where I was or what I was doing. And then I realized in quite a new way that I was face to face with the secret midnight listener, and I steeled myself as best I could for what was about to come. The source of the rash courage that came to me at that awful moment will ever be to me an inexplicable mystery, though shivering with fear and my forehead wet with unholy dew, I resolved to advance. Twenty questions leaped to my lips. What are you? What do you want? Why do you listen and watch? Why do you come into my room? But none of them found articulate utterance. I began forthwith to climb the stairs, 
and with the first signs of my advance, he drew himself back into the shadows and began to move. He retreated as swiftly as I advanced. I heard the sound of his crawling motion a few steps ahead of me, ever maintaining the same distance. When I reached the landing, he was halfway up the next flight. And when I was halfway up the next flight, he had already arrived at the top landing. I then heard him open the door of the little square room under the roof and go in. Immediately, though the door did not close after him, the sound of his moving entirely ceased. Well, at this moment, I longed for a light or a stick or any weapon whatsoever, but I had none of these things, and it was impossible to go back. So I marched steadily up the rest of the stairs, and in less than a minute found myself standing in the gloom face to face with the door through which the creature had just entered. Well, for a moment I hesitated. The door was about halfway open, and the listener was standing, evidently, in his favorite attitude, just behind it, listening. To search through that dark room for him seemed hopeless. To enter the same small space where he was seemed horrible. The very idea filled me with loathing, and I almost decided to turn back. It is strange at such times how trivial things impinge on the consciousness with a shock as of something important and immense. Something, it may have been a beetle or, or a mouse, scuttled over the bare boards behind me. The door moved a quarter of an inch, closing. My decision came back with a sudden rush, as it were, and thrusting out a foot, I kicked the door so that it swung sharply back to its full extent and permitted me to walk forward slowly into the aperture of profound blackness beyond. What a queer, soft sound my bare feet made on the boards. How the blood sang and buzzed in my head. I was inside. The darkness closed over me, hiding even the windows. I began to grope my way round the walls in a thorough search. But in order to prevent all possibility of the other's escape, I, first of all, closed the door. There we were, we two, shut in, together, between four walls, within a few feet of one another. But with what, with whom was I thus momentarily imprisoned. A new light flashed suddenly over the affair with a swift, 
illuminating brilliance, and I knew I was a fool, an utter fool. I was wide awake at last, and the horror was evaporating. Oh, my cursed nerves again, a dream, a nightmare, and the old result, walking in my sleep. The figure was a dream figure. Many a time before had the actors in my dreams stood before me for some moments after I was awake. There, there was a chance match in my pajamas pocket and I struck it on the wall. The room was utterly empty. It held not even a shadow. I went quickly down to bed, cursing my wretched nerves and my foolish, vivid dreams. But as soon as ever I was asleep again, and the same uncouth figure of a man crept back to my bedside and bending over me with his immense head close to my ear, whispered repeatedly in my dreams, I want your body. I want its covering. I'm waiting for it and listening always. Words scarcely less foolish than the dream. Hmm. But I wonder what that queer odor was up in the square room. I noticed it again and stronger than ever before, and it seemed to be also in my bedroom when I woke this morning. November 29th, slowly, as moonbeams rise over a misty sea in June, the thought is entering my mind that my nerves and somnambulistic dreams do not adequately account for the influence this house exercises upon me. It holds me as with a fine invisible net. I cannot escape if I would. It draws me and it means to keep me. November 30th. The post this morning brought me a letter from Aidan, forwarded from my old rooms in Earl's Court. It was from Chapter, my former Trinity chum, who is on his way home from the East and asks for my address. Well, I sent it to him at the hotel he mentioned to await arrival. As I've already said, my windows command a view of the alley, and I can see an arrival without difficulty. This morning, while I was busy writing, the sound of footsteps coming up the alley filled me with a sense of vague alarm that I could in no way account for. I went over to the window and saw a man standing below, waiting for the door to be opened. His shoulders were broad, his top hat glossy, and his overcoat fitted beautifully round the collar. 
All this I could see, but no more. Presently the door was opened, and the shock to my nerves was unmistakable when I heard a man's voice ask, Is Mr. still here? Mentioning my name. I could not catch the answer, but it could only have been in the affirmative, for the man entered the hall and the door shut to behind him. But I waited, in vain, for the sound of his steps on the stairs. There was no sound of any kind. It seemed to me so strange that I opened my door and looked out. No one was anywhere to be seen. I walked across the narrow landing and looked through the window that commands the whole length of the alley. There was no sign of a human being coming or going. The lane was deserted. So then I deliberately walked downstairs into the kitchen and asked the gray-faced landlady if a gentleman had just that minute called for me. The answer, given with an odd, weary sort of smile, was no. December 1st. I feel genuinely alarmed and uneasy over the state of my nerves. Dreams are dreams, but never before have I had dreams in broad daylight. I am looking forward very much to Chapter's arrival. He is a capital fellow, vigorous, healthy, with no nerves, and even less imagination, and he has two thousand pounds a year into the bargain. Periodically he makes me offers. The last was to travel round the world with him as secretary, which was a delicate way of paying my expenses and giving me some pocket money. Offers, however, which I invariably decline. I prefer to keep his friendship. Women could not come between us. Money might. Therefore I give it no opportunity. Chapter always laughed at what he called my fancies, being himself possessed only of that thin-blooded quality of imagination, which is very associated with the prosaic-minded man. Yet, if taunted with this obvious lack, his wrath is deeply stirred. His psychology is that of the crass materialist, always a rather funny article. It will afford me genuine relief, nonetheless, to hear the cold judgment his mind will have to pass upon the story of this house, as I shall have it to tell. December 2nd. The strangest part of it all. I have not referred to in this brief diary. Truth to tell, I have been afraid to set it down in black and white. I have kept it in the background of my thoughts, preventing it as far as possible from taking shape. In spite of my efforts, however, it 
has continued to grow stronger. Now that I come to face the issue squarely, well, it, it is harder to express than I imagined. Like a half-remembered melody that trips in the head but vanishes the moment you try to sing it, these thoughts form a group in the background of my mind, behind my mind, as it were, and refuse to come forward. They are crouching, ready to spring, but the actual leap never takes place. In these rooms, except when my mind is strongly concentrated on my own work, I find myself suddenly dealing in thoughts and ideas that are not my own. New, strange conceptions, wholly foreign to my temperament, are forever cropping up in my head. What precisely they are is of no particular importance. The point is that they are entirely apart from the channel in which my thoughts have hither thereto been accustomed to flow. Especially they come when my mind is at rest, unoccupied, when I'm dreaming over the fire or sitting with a book which fails to hold my attention, then these thoughts, which are not mine, spring into life and make me exceedingly uncomfortable. Sometimes they are so strong that I almost feel as if someone were in the room beside me, thinking aloud. Evidently, my nerves and liver are shockingly out of order. I must work harder and take more vigorous exercise. The horrid thoughts never come when my mind is much occupied, but they are always there, waiting, and, as it were, alive. Oh, what I have attempted to describe above came first upon me gradually, after I had been some days in the house, and then grew steadily in strength. And other strange thing has come to me only twice in all these weeks. Oh, it appalls me. It is the consciousness of the propinquity of some deadly and loathsome disease. Oh, it comes over me like a wave of fever heat and then just passes off, leaving me cold and trembling. The air seems for a few seconds to become tainted. So penetrating and convincing is the thought of this sickness that on both occasions my brain has turned momentarily dizzy and through my mind, like flames of white heat, have flashed the ominous names of all the dangerous illnesses I know. I can no more explain these visitations than I can fly. Yet I know, I know, 
there is no dreaming about the clammy skin and palpitating heart, which they always leave as witnesses of their brief visit. Most strongly of all, was I aware of this nearness of a mortal sickness when, on the night of the 28th, I went upstairs in pursuit of that listening figure, when we were shut in together in that little square room under the roof, and I felt that I was face to face with the actual essence of this invisible and malignant disease. Well, such a feeling never entered my heart before, and I pray to God it never may again. There, okay, now, I have confessed. I have given some expression, at least, to the feelings that so far I have been afraid to see in my own writing. For since I can no longer deceive myself, the experiences of that night, the 28th, were no more a dream were no more a dream than my daily breakfast is a dream and the trivial entry in this diary by which I sought to explain away an occurrence that caused me unutterable horror was due solely to my desire not to acknowledge in words what I really felt and believed to be true. The increase that would have accrued to my horror by so doing might have been more than I could stand. December 3rd. I wish chapter would come. My facts are already marshaled and I can see his cool gray eyes fixed incredulously on my face as I relate them. The knocking at my door, the well-dressed caller, the light in the upper window and the shadow upon the blind, the man who preceded me in the snow, the scattering of my clothes at night, Emily's arrested confession, the landlady's suspicious reticence, the midnight listener on the stairs, and those awful subsequent words in my sleep Ooh. and above all and hardest to tell the presence of the abominable sickness and the stream of thoughts and ideas that are not my own I can see chapter's face and I can almost hear his deliberate words Oh, you've been at tea again and underfeeding, I expect, as usual. Better see my nerve, doctor, and then come with me to the south of France. For this fellow who knows nothing of disordered liver or high-strung nerves goes regularly to a great nerve specialist with a periodical belief that his nervous system is beginning to decay. December 5th. Ever since the incident of the listener, I have kept a nightlight burning in my bedroom 
and my sleep has been undisturbed. Last night, however, I was subjected to a far worse annoyance. I woke suddenly and saw a man in front of the dressing table regarding himself in the mirror. Now the door was locked as usual. I knew at once it was the listener and the blood turned to ice in my veins. Such a wave of horror and dread swept over me that it seemed to turn me rigid in the bed, and I could neither move nor speak. I noted, however, that the odor I so abhorred was strong in the room. The man seemed to be tall and broad, and he was stooping forward over the mirror. His back was turned to me, but in the glass I saw the reflection of a huge head and face illumined fitfully by the flicker of the nightlight. The spectral gray of very early morning stealing in round the edges of the curtains lent an additional horror to the picture, for it fell upon hair that was tawny and mane-like, hanging loosely about a face whose swollen, rugose features, wrinkled and veined, bore the once-seen, never-forgotten, leonine expression of, well, I dare not write down that awful word. But by way of corroborative proof, I saw in the faint mingling of the two lights that there were several bronze-colored blotches on the cheeks which the man was evidently examining with great care in the glass. The lips were pale and very thick and large, and one hand, well, I could not see, but the other rested on the ivory back of my hairbrush. Its muscles were strangely contracted, the fingers thin to emaciation, the back of the hand closely puckered up. Well, it was like a big gray spider crouching to spring or the claw of a great bird. The full realization that I was alone in the room with this nameless creature almost within arm's reach of him, overcame me to such a degree that when he suddenly turned and regarded me with small, beady eyes, wholly out of proportion to the grandeur of their massive setting, I sat bolt upright in bed, uttered a loud cry, and then fell back in a dead swoon of terror upon the bed. Still, December 5th, when I came to this morning, the first thing I noticed was that my clothes were strewn all 
over the floor. I find it difficult to put my thoughts together and have sudden accesses of violent trembling. I determined that I would go at once to Chapter's Hotel and find out when he is expected. I cannot refer to what happened in the night. It is too awful, and I have to keep my thoughts rigorously away from it. I feel lightheaded and queer. I couldn't eat any breakfast and have twice vomited with blood. While dressing to go out, a hansom rattled up noisily over the cobbles, and a minute later the door opened. And to my great joy, in walked the very subject of my thoughts. The sight of his strong face and quiet eyes had an immediate effect upon me, and I grew calmer again. His very handshake was a, a sort of tonic. But as I listened eagerly to the deep tones of his reassuring voice, then the visions of the night paled a little. I began to realize how very hard it was going to be to tell him my wild, intangible tale. Some men radiate an animal vigor that destroys the delicate wolf of a vision and effectually prevents its reconstruction. Chapter was one of these men. We talked of incidents that had filled the interval since we had last met, and he told me something of his travels. He talked, and I listened, but so full was I of the horrid thing I had to tell that, oh, I made a poor listener. I was forever watching my opportunity to leap in and explode it all under his nose. Before very long, however, it was borne in upon me that he, too, was merely talking for time. He, too, held something of importance in the background of his mind, something too weighty to let fall till the right moment presented itself, so that during the whole of the first half hour we were both waiting for the psychological moment in which properly to release our respective bombs, and the intensity of our mind's action set up opposing forces that merely sufficed to hold one another in check, and nothing more. Well, as soon as I realized this, therefore, I resolved to yield. I renounced for the time my purpose of telling my story and had the satisfaction of seeing that his mind, released from the restraint of my own, at once began to make preparations for the discharge of its momentous burden. The talk grew less and less magnetic. The interest waned. The descriptions of his travels became less alive. There were pauses between his sentences. Well, presently he repeated himself. His words clothed no living thoughts. The pauses grew longer, and then 
Well, the interest dwindled altogether and went out like a candle in the wind. His voice ceased, and he looked up squarely into my face with serious and anxious eyes. The psychological moment had come at last. I say, he began, and then he stopped short. Well, I made an unconscious gesture of encouragement, but said no word. I dreaded the impending disclosure exceedingly. A dark shadow seemed to precede it. I say, he blurted out at last, what in the world made you ever come to this place? To these rooms, I mean. Well, they're cheap for one thing, I began, and central and... They're too cheap, he interrupted. Didn't you ask what made them so cheap? Well, it, it never occurred to me at the time. There was a pause in which he avoided my eyes. Oh, for God's sake, go on, man, and tell it, I cried, for the suspense was getting more than I could stand in my nervous condition. This, this was where Blount lived so long, he said. And where he died, he added quietly. You know, in the old days, I often used to come here and see him and do what I could to alleviate his... He stuck fast again. Well, I said with a great effort, please go on faster. But, Chapter went on, turning his face to the window with a perceptible shiver. He finally got so terrible. I, I, I simply couldn't stand it, though I always thought I could stand anything. It got on my nerves and, and made me dream and haunted me day and night. I stared at him and said nothing. I had never heard of Blount in my life, and I didn't know what he was talking about. But all the same, I was trembling, and my mouth had become strangely dry. This, this is the first time I've been back here, he said, almost in a whisper. And upon my word, it gives me the creeps. I swear it isn't fit for a man to live in. I never saw you look so bad, old man. I... I've got it for a year, I jerked out <laughs> with a forced laugh. I signed the lease and all. I, I thought it was rather a bargain. Chapter shuddered and buttoned his overcoat up to his neck. And then he spoke in a low voice, looking occasionally behind him as though he thought someone was listening. I too could have sworn someone else was in the room with us. He did it himself, you know, and no one blamed him a bit. His sufferings were awful. For the last two years, he used to wear a veil when he went out, and even then, it was always in a closed carriage. 
Even the attendant who had nursed him for so long was at length obliged to leave. The extremities of both the lower limbs were gone. They dropped off, and he moved about the ground on all fours with a sort of crawling motion. Oh, and the odor, too, was... Now I was obliged to stop him. I interrupted him here. I could hear no more details of that sort. My skin was moist. I felt hot and cold by turns, for at last I was beginning to understand. Oh, poor devil, chapter went on. I used to keep my eyes closed as much as possible. He always begged to be allowed to take his veil off and asked if I minded very much. I used to stand by the open window. He never touched me, though. He rented the whole house. Nothing would induce him to leave it. Did, did he occupy these very rooms? No, no, he had the little room on the top floor, the square one, just under the roof. He preferred it because it was dark. These rooms were too near the ground and he was afraid people might see him through the windows. A crowd had been known to follow him up to the very door and then stand below the windows in the hope of catching a glimpse of his face. Oh, but there were hospitals. Oh, he wouldn't go near one. And they didn't like to force him. You know, they say it's not contagious, so well, there was nothing to prevent his staying here if he wanted to. He spent all his time reading medical books about drugs and so on. His head and face were, oh, something appalling, just like a lion's. I held up my hand to arrest further description. He was a burden to the world, and he knew it. One night, I, I suppose he realized it too keenly to wish to live. He had the free use of drugs, and in the morning he was found dead on the floor. Two years ago, that was, and they said then he still had several years to live. Then in heaven's name, I cried, unable to bear the suspense any longer, tell me! what it was he had, and be quick about it. Oh, I, I thought you knew, he exclaimed with genuine surprise. Oh, I, I thought you knew. He leaned forward, and our eyes met. In a scarcely audible whisper, I caught the words his lips seemed almost afraid to utter. He was a leper. <laughs>